Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. We can make these little pools, you know, these little what I call safe nests where we come together. And then in the three circle practice that we use around addictions or just any kind of self-harming behavior, a bad habit that you want to stop doing, we work very collaboratively with the body. It's not a fight. It's not a power struggle to stop anything. It's a recognition, oh, I fell back into that neural pathway again. I was at the fridge eating instead of feeling again. And then it's, it's being curious about that. What was going on for you that day? What really activated that place that your body felt it had to go back to to keep you safe? It's like that. It's a gentle invitation to work with the body to make those changes. It's not a fight. It's not a power struggle. It's not any of those things. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. everybody. As we wrap up 2022 and season seven, we want to thank each of you for your ongoing support. Always feel free to share this free resource with those you think could use it. By now, we figured out that insight alone is never enough, right? So today's episode is about how to access internal states for bottom-up healing. During my conversation with Jan Winhall, we discussed using polyvagal concepts and especially the dorsal branch of the autonomic nervous system and understanding trauma and addiction. It's such a pleasure to have her on the show. Jan has worked directly with Dr. Steve Porges, the pioneer of polyvagal theory, and you can find the article that they co-wrote in the show notes. You can also find links to her book, Treating Trauma and Addiction with Felt Sense and the Polyvagal Model, and a couple of handouts from the book and our show notes at www.therapistuncensored.com slash 193. Okay, let's get to it. Welcome to the show. We're very excited to have you. We are bringing you Jan Winhall. Thanks so much, Sue. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So, you know, I wrote a book last year called Treating Trauma and Addiction with a Felt Sense Polyvagal Model. And that book came from 40 years of doing this work. Hard to believe now, but it's really true. (laughs) And I started off as a very young therapist, fresh out of graduate school, working with a group of young women who were incest survivors and living in a very challenging neighborhood outside of the city of Toronto. And it was really through doing that work and listening and being with these women that I learned really the basis of everything that I've developed and uh, in the model that I created because I sensed and I I just knew from listening, truly listening to them without pathologizing them, just freshly listening to their experiences, 
as incredibly painful as that was, what I was hearing really didn't match what I'd been taught in terms of these women uh, having borderline personality disorder and being highly manipulative and really pathologizing them and downright treating them with contempt. So kind of current psychological models, there was interpretations that were like putting resistances as pathology. Yes. Um, Yeah. Borderline was used to be used certainly as this throwaway diagnosis of like, it means that I can't help them. Yes, that I can't help them and and a lot of other things that are very disrespectful to the person's dignity and really not understanding the behaviors that, Mm -hmm. and this is what I began to unravel. It's like, and and Bessel van der Kolk asked this question too, because he also can really listen, like, why was it that people were hurting themselves, but Sue, really clear that something about the way that these behaviors were functioning in their bodies while they hurt them, they also helped them. They brought relief. And that piece wasn't explored well. You know, back then I was in a feminist therapist group and and then Judith Herman's wonderful book, Trauma and Recovery came out and we all were like, it was like candy, honestly. We totally, were, I remember that. Do you? We, oh yeah. Devouring <laughs> this book and trying to so find a new way that honored the dignity of the women that we worked with and ourselves. And, you know, I went back when I was writing my book, I went back and I, I read uh, Judith Herman's book again. And now with, you know, the latest edition, And I realized, oh, wow, she talked about the autonomic nervous system back then. She tied addiction to it, but she didn't have the dorsal branch that Steve Porges brought to us named, but she had it. We knew back then what we we called this, the beautiful language of the sympathetic branch of the nervous system we called flooding. And then the dorsal branch we called numbing and the shutting down. That's where I knew It was through that system of the autonomic nervous system. We didn't talk about that then, but Judith Herman did because she was an MD. So she was trained in that aspect of the autonomic nervous system, right? But she recognized that that was where the most powerful way to understand addiction occurred. And that's really the heart of my message. Mm -hmm. And so then when I had this incredible fortune to be able to meet with Steve Porges and talk with him about, I think addictions are like these state shifters. I called them propellers that shift the body from this overactive flight, fight, horrible flooding, intense, either anxiety or rage or both. And then shifts the body into this shutting down what he called the dorsal branch, the dissociation or vice versa. And he said, yeah, I've always thought about addictions as state regulation strategies. (laughs) I was like, yes. Okay. This is now really starting to make sense. You know, one of the things certainly that we're a huge proponent of is this notion of bottom-up processing. And I know that this is something that you cover there. How about we start there as far as what that, what does that mean? Bottom-up processing. Well, what it means really is that we've forgotten we live in our bodies, but our bodies haven't forgotten us, 
right? Our bodies speak to us through tremendous kinds of messages through the vagus nerve, through what Steve was so able to really capture for us as trauma therapists. And, you know, 80% of the information that comes up into the brainstem is through the body. It's afferent. And in our Western culture, we've disembodied ourselves. You know, white supremacy culture values cognition and really denigrates the body. And we're in the polyvagal world and in, in lots in the feminist world. And, you know, we're really in somatics bringing the body back and saying, wait a minute, you know, what we've done here is really skewed. We've gone off into celebrating cognitive behavior therapy at the expense of the body and the body processes. So my model brings together two embodied processes. One is introception. And that's where I went searching back there 40 years ago. It's like, how am I going to help these women in, in work in their bodies? Because that's where trauma lives. If you open your eyes and you sit with your client, it's all there in the body. Yeah, that's how trauma is experienced. It's not, yes. you know, narrative memory. It's physiological experience. Yeah. And the vagus nerve is that through, you know, Steve's term, neuroception. That process of neuroception, of noticing unconsciously how safe we are, and then the process of introception, working with the felt sense through lived experience, subjective so, experiencing. Yeah. And those two embodied processes are what the model is about. So let's break that apart just a little bit more. So yeah. interoception and neuroception. So can you say that again as far as the difference between the two and how they go together? Yeah, so the first piece that I found as I went searching was really this process of introception that Jendlin developed called the felt sense. The felt sense is all about this capacity in the body to notice what we're experiencing and to carry us forward to the right direction of healing and growth if we quiet down and listen to what our body tells us. So what Jenlin found in doing a lot of research with clients and therapists who reported really positive outcomes was essentially that these clients were integrated, they lived in their bodies and they listened to their bodies. If their bodies were tight in their neck or their shoulders, they listened to what's that about for me? And then as the therapist was able to, in a very depathologizing way, just follow the body with compassion and curiosity, as we, we know now, the body starts to shift and you start to feel better. It's like pausing and like, yeah, I really do need to get back to dealing with that moment with that person that bugged me. And that doesn't come if we go 50 miles an hour. You know, your pace slowed down, you know, her eyes closed for a minute and it changed actually the tone, right? Like it, if there was a vibration, it slowed it down, which is beautiful. And so as a listener, as you kind of follow along and begin to move more internal in your, in your awareness, your attention, as it moves inward, some people will say, I feel nothing. So what about that? 
Yeah. Well, and that tells you a lot, right? Some people are afraid to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's because with a trauma response, we've learned to move out of the body because it's frightening. And really, that's what our whole culture teaches us to do. You know, white body supremacy teaches us, don't go into the body, it's dangerous in there, you might feel something. And when we've been hurt in relationship deeply, it is dangerous to stay connected. So we want to go to that dissociated place because it's adaptive. It's not pathologizing. It's adaptive because it's there's not enough safety around to become present. I also think about sort of developmental trauma, just, you know, small t developmental trauma where that it's not that you were connected with your body and you had to cut it off, no. but that you were never directed yeah. inward. So really literally don't have that muscle of the internal attention, being able to put the internal attention in. It just isn't there. Yes, it's frightening. It's threatening for all of us in the culture. And, you know, Judith Herman talked about this too, right? And it's particularly non-adaptive if you are living in a way that the culture doesn't accept. So, you know, racialized people or trans people, if you're living in a way that the culture says is wrong, it's not safe to come into your body. And so we, as trauma therapists, this was such an important gift that Steve gave us in recognizing that dorsal branch because a lot of us knew that and we, we had some of the language, but really recognizing that state in the nervous system helps to to really make our way of understanding it just more sophisticated. It's just a deeper level of understanding how bodies work. This is just how bodies work. They shift into dorsal and addictions help you to do that very efficiently. That's the function. And so of course you're gonna use them because they work. <laughs> and it's amoral that it's not yes. positive or negative. No. But I really kind of to highlight something that you just mentioned So for those that are actively rejected or even persecuted in a dominant culture, to be connected to your feelings around that can be very dangerous and highly threatening. So that's what you were saying is so that it's adaptive to not notice. That just feels so, so important. Yes, this is what I call, Sue, moments of real liberation in the therapy. You know, when people ask me, how can you do that work? You know, and they get off in this kind of disgusted look on their faces. It's very disturbing. But that's what our culture does. It's like, ooh, how could you touch into that? Especially addiction, ooh, and sex addiction, ooh. You know, there's so much fear and contempt around it. And of course, we then incorporate that when we're struggling with it ourselves. So to the gift of being able to give this to people to say, you know, addiction is just how the body propels itself from one state to another to try to survive and adapt. And it's, it's worked for you in many ways. Eventually it doesn't, hopefully, if you're here in my office, some part wants to shift, but it is completely amoral. It's just a function of the body, just right. what your body, what everybody's body does to survive. So you mentioned the term sex addiction, and I want to reference Doug Braun Harvey's work, and we're going to link that in the show notes. It's really fantastic, kind of sex positive, you know, GLBT friendly, you know, all yes. that. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean when you say sex addiction? 
Yeah. So the way that I think about addiction the, is very simple kind of definition that really helps us to kind of cut through all of that. So I just think of it as a behavior that helps you in the short term, right? It brings relief and it begins to harm you and the people around you in the long term. And you can't stop doing it even though you want to. So if people say to me, well, you know, I'm, uh, I like having lots of sex anonymously in the park. I'm like, okay. You know, like what, what is there something about that? That's not working for you. Well, yeah, now I've met somebody and they don't really want that kind of lifestyle. I'm not sure what to do about all that. Well, is that something that you want to look at and change? Nobody's saying it's wrong. But did it, did it help you or it was okay for you in one context? Now your life's kind of shifting and changing it and you actually want to stop doing it. You want to try something new, but you can't and, and you don't understand what that's about. So again, it's amoral. Right. Because, you know, for sure they, uh, yeah, I want to have sex and with whoever and I'm in, you know, I'm in a throuple. So calling something like that compulsive or dysfunctional is the same thing as the old stuff that you were describing about borderline personality. That's right. Pathologizing it. So the way that you're incorporating it is you mean that if it is so driven that it is causing harm and the person themselves wants to change it. Yep. Yeah. 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 It comes back to your own experience, your own lived experience. If it's not working for you, if it's hurting you, it's hurting the people around you, or you just want to make a change. And that's, that's right. hard to do once you're into that neuroplasticity world of understanding it through no, those neural pathways that have become rigid. Yeah, it works both ways. Yes. Um, unfortunately. That's a paradox. <laughs> exactly. So at the, at the very beginning, I had started off with interoception and neuroception. Yes. And you did such a beautiful job of talking about interoception. I just... I want to loop back around and make sure yeah. that we get in the uh, neuroception. Yeah, yeah. So that was the first piece that I brought into the model was this, the felt sense and all the beautiful world of Gendlin. Gene Gendlin was a, a genius and he was my teacher for many years. I was so lucky. And he developed a whole philosophy that was based on embodiment, bringing concepts into the body. And that's how I wrote my book. Every concept that we used, including neuroception, I brought into, okay, what's your felt sense of the word neuroception? Or what's your felt sense of the word addiction? And taking it down into the body. So there's the introceptive piece is around felt sensing and and how bodies carry meaning in our lives and how bodies know how to carry us forward until we get trapped in that trauma feedback loop of flight, fight, freeze, and then folding in, I call it, or shutting down. Now, neuroception, I then discovered, you know, polyvagal theory, I guess it was back in about 2012 when I heard Steve Porges speak. And that's where I then started to think of, okay, so this is really about the autonomic nervous system. And so Steve's word for that that process in the body of unconsciously how the body knows to shift us into these different 
autonomic states to adapt to survive. And you, just like with temperature, that's how I think about it. You know, if you're sick and your temperature raises, it's not like we say to ourselves, oh, I'm getting sick, I better raise my temperature. <laughs> the body just knows how to do that. You know, so it's like, if you, if you think bodies aren't smart, think about that. That's a great example. Isn't that a great example? Yeah, I, it is. I'm trying to find an example to explain. So it's the same with neuroception. Our body, you know, a, a loud sound occurs. We don't think to ourselves, oh, geez, I better jump. And yeah, my heart rate better go, go up. into flight, fight. It just happens. It's just a natural response. And so that's the process of neuroception. And so then I brought those two things together, the felt sense of introception and neuroception through a polyvagal lens, and that's the model. And when we work with those two processes in the body, there it is, we've got it. It's like, what's going on, you know, in terms of our, our neurophysiology, what state am I in? Because that state is going to determine how we experience our lives. That brings us to the intervening variable. Yeah, that's definitely the way that we talk about it here too. You know, we describe neuroception as, you know, this little inner scanner <laughs> that's just going on all the time. All and, the time. And this notion that by practicing state awareness, you know, there's the state and trait, trait being more of like, you know, described before as like a attachment patterns. So that's kind of more where you hang out, where you live versus yep. state, which is what you're describing right now. Yes. So what, what is the intervening uh, variable? The here? intervening variable is Porges' term for understanding the power of the autonomic nervous system. So, you know, traditionally what we're taught in Western psychology is that there's a, in behaviorism is there's a stimulus and there's a response. And what Steve is saying is in between the stimulus and the response is the autonomic nervous system state. Because if there's a stimulus of say, I'm walking down the street and you bump into me, depending on what state I'm in, in my nervous system, if I'm living in a very ventral, calm kind of place and you bump into me, my response is going to be, oh, you know, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You know, let's dance. She wasn't looking or let's dance. Yeah. <laughs> social engagement. Right. But I forgive you easily. It's all good. If the state that I'm in is fight in the sympathetic branch and you bump into me on the street, well, I'm liable to tell you to just like, you know, what the hell are you doing? Watch where you're going. We know people like that. Their background is always a bit angry or always a bit afraid, you know, or always kind of numb and kind of dull in the senses and not really there. And those are the autonomic states. And depending on what state we're in, our response will be flavored by that. And to me, that's just crucial because it tells you first of all, that how your client is responding to the world, we need to know where are they in the nervous system right away? We need to make it conscious because our bodies may know, right? When I'm sitting with you, even when it's online here, so I can feel in my, through my neuroception where you are in your body because we co-regulate. You know, if you're in this, if we feel in the people that we're working with or in the group, because I work with groups all the time now, 
the sense of, you know, panic or whatever, then we know that their responses are going to be flavored by that. And that our job is to help them moment by moment to slow things down. If it's safe enough, you know, we don't start with that. But slowly to begin to do that, to bring in enough safety and dignity and respect that people will come with us. Because a lot of addiction work is co it's, it's like coaxing. It really is. It's hard work. And it is like coaxing. It's like, I remember, I always remember Bessel van der Kolk saying, you know, if a traumatized person is in the back of a cage, and if you stand at the front of the cage and say, oh, come on out, it's really great out here. Do you really think that's going to work? <laughs> no. You have to be willing to go inside and slowly, 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 through sensing into introception too, right? Where is this person in their body? Where am I in mine? And inviting the possibility of collaborating with the body, with the body, the person's autonomic nervous system, to invite the shift slowly to come over time. And then as that happens over years of moving into ventral, addictions stop because their function is no longer needed. So we don't live in fear. There's no devil in the corner doing push-ups, waiting. You know, that just really brings in that sympathetic response in the body. You might be a dry drunk. You might have stopped, but you're scared. That's not healing. That's not healing. Yeah, no, I really love what you're describing. And this is part of why that insight alone is not enough. No. Stopping the addictive behavior is not enough. Like really getting into the limbic, unconscious, implicit, and that the path to do that is the autonomic nervous system for sure. I love that you mentioned groups. I do a ton of groups. That's why I'm a group therapist. I absolutely yeah, love it and just super value it. Let's imagine a group, you know, made up group of maybe women, traumatized women that may would have traditionally been described as borderline, mm -hmm. which by the way, for the listener really kind of means that the nervous system is very like the amygdala. You might think about that goes up and down very quickly. There's a dysregulation there that isn't a more, again, it isn't a moral thing. It really is a physiological problem, you know, but it, but it looks, it can look uh, very stimulating and be yeah. very difficult to work with. So, all right, I'm putting you in a group. Yeah, you've, got, uh, <laughs> some, you've got, exactly. You've got some traumatized women. Now describe how that this model would look. Well, this model would look like what I've done is to develop, I'm a very visual person. So I've developed two visual graphic models. One is a model of the nervous system. For, um, I have one for clients, which is kind of simple. We call it the six Fs and one for clinicians. And I use that with the group in addiction as well, very much so. And also a model that is drawn from Patrick Cairn's work called the three circle practice. So I don't really agree with a lot of Karen's model because he uses a whole sort of pathologizing brain disease uh, notion of addiction. But I love this three circle practice. So what we do is we use both of those graphics as practices. Mm -hmm. 
So in the six F's, we have the ventral branch we call flock. We have the sympathetic branch that we call flight fight. We have the dorsal branch that we call fold. They're just simple ways of remembering. Then we have blended states. So the blended state uh, between the grounded ventral branch and sympathetic, we call fun, you know, or play or fired up. So fired up is like a lot of what I'm doing right now. I feel fired up. I feel grounded, but it's exciting to be with you and to do this work. And then on the other uh, side of the model is this blending of flock and ventral and dorsal. So you get these beautiful places of flow, the, the felt sense practicing, the meditation practice, love making, nursing, sometimes breastfeeding is, is this, it's, it's where the body feels safe to be still, to be immobilized. Such a gift when you're traumatized. And then the third blended state I named as fixate. And this is the blending of the sympathetic flight fight and the folding dorsal. And that addictions live in this fixate freeze state and they propel us back and forth to function, to be able to shift states when we need to because there's no ventral available. And so we use this and we call it orienting to the model, orienting to the six Fs. And my clients know where they are. We do a practice called the felt sense polyvagal grounding practice. We go inside. We first notice how the body's carrying itself so that they learn to identify what state they're in through the feelings in the body, either of constriction with sympathetic or a kind of collapsing with fold and dorsal or a nice calm kind of feeling in the belly, the center of the body in ventral. So people know when they work with me, they know the state they're in. But then we go into kind of felt sensing into what's going on in your life. What wants your attention right now? Where's there an issue that's calling to you? And then we work with a focusing practice in the group and people learn how to listen to each other and we share listening along with me, which is really powerful. Felt focusing is done in partnerships, which is so beautiful help each other in the group to heal and then everybody has a partnership outside of the group as well it's so beautiful it's so empowering you know Jenlin wrote a paper called uh, the politics of giving therapy away and it's not to to in any way dismiss what we do as therapists but he his vision was that it, when we can teach people to listen to what's happening inside another person in their body and to be with each other with compassion and skill, then we're not gonna need therapists nearly as much as we do now, because we're gonna live in a more grounded, regulated world. Yeah, that you know, they're talking about the mental health crisis and yes. things like that and not enough therapists. But yeah. yeah, you don't have to have letters behind your name to be a powerful healer. And also, you know, all the therapy in the world isn't gonna solve you know, systematic racism yeah. and violence against trans yes. people. Like yes. Uh, yes. there's no, you know, especially here in Texas, like <laughs> these poor families that literally can be investigated by child protective services. If their child is in treatment related to gender identity, it is insane. And so describing, you know, trying to get them into ventral vagal 
yeah, doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. However, I do believe, and you know, I learned this from Sander Butler, who 40 years ago, who wrote one of the first books on incest called The Conspiracy of Silence. And one of the women in the group asked her, it's like, just what we're talking about now. How do we say, you know, oh, it's okay to be... And, and I remember Sandra saying, there are little moments that we can create together. Right now, right here, as far as we know, in this moment, we can create enough safety together to begin to settle. And she said, that's very important for me. And I learned a lot from that. I really love that, especially in the context of the acknowledgement of the larger abuse violation, you know what I mean? Um, The the systematic problem, you know, like these big things that are impacting our nervous system. Yet at the same time, I totally agree and love how you said that. I think that was really wonderful. It's it's still the solution, if you will, you know, inside ourselves is still finding this ventral space, going to this embodied. Yes, that's right. Because it's from there that we can make decisions and respond in the most mindful and effective and maybe powerful, fiery way. Absolutely. Because if we're all in flight fight, we're not going to be able to help each other to feel safe because we haven't got enough of it inside. This is, again, I mean, so Steve's message, right? It's like we must find these places of enough cues of safety that we can give each other that we can make these little pools, you know, these little what I call safe nests where we come together. And then in the three circle practice that we use around addictions or just any kind of self-harming behavior, a bad habit that you want to stop doing, we work very collaboratively with the body. It's not a fight. It's not a power struggle to stop anything. It's a recognition, oh, I fell back into that neural pathway again. I was at the fridge eating instead of feeling again. And then it's it's being curious about that. What was going on for you that day? What really activated that place that your body felt it had to go back to to keep you safe? It's like that. It's a gentle invitation to work with the body to make those changes. It's not a fight. It's not a power struggle. It's not any of those things. No, I love that. And, the, and it, because it's not those things, then like the coaxing really does work because by looking at the behavior, you're not unintentionally, you know, activating the defense that you're doing. So from this place of curiosity and compassion yeah, and teaching. recognizing that it's all about adapting. So something mm-hmm. through neuroception, your body said, I'm not safe. I need to go back to that again. I need to shut down. I need to eat a lot to shut down. And, you know, such a common one. And we really, we really honor that. It's like, okay. Because what happens is a kind of faulty neuroception, right? It's like the trauma feedback loop. We get stuck there in this plastic paradox, right? So it was adaptive when there was no place of safety at all, but then it becomes just the pathway in the brain. This is Mark Lewis's beautiful work, you know, that the learning model of addiction. This is just what happens. The brain lays down these neural pathways. It's like walking in the, in the park. Eventually you see a path and then eventually you get stuck and it's like a rut that you're in. 
And that's the paradox, right? Sure, brains can change and make new pathways, but if you go down that road too often, which is what addiction is, because you're searching for that little pump of dopamine or whatever, then you're going to get into a rut. And then you, you can change it, but it is a lot of work. But you can change it. And when you understand that level of sophistication around what addiction really looks like in the brain, then it really empowers people. It's like, okay, you fell down that rut again and you went to the fridge or you went to whatever it is that you do, whatever it is, you know, that you learn to do. Screen, you know, losing four hours on yeah. TikTok or whatever. Yeah. yeah, or masturbating or all those things that are just bring pleasure to the body. Of course they do. And they develop very early on when you need them because they're accessible. You know, they're accessible. You can use them quickly and they are powerful. Orgasm is a powerful way to soothe. And sucking your thumb, that's what I did. I realized just a while ago, I realized, hey, my first addiction was to my thumb. <laughs> and boy, do we shame kids for that, eh? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I stopped sucking my thumb. Do you know how I did that? I was eight years old and my grade two teacher made me stand in front of the class mm. and suck my thumb. Oh my gosh. And I still have that embodied memory. Of course. How but terrible. Now, but you know, I, I realized like when I was giving birth, I sucked my thumb. And it wasn't. But it's still there, that that that, that, that pathway. Still, yep. And even as I talk to you about it, mm -hmm. I can feel it on the roof of my mouth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it feels good. I mean, that's what addiction, that's the pathway. And it's there's nothing, it's it's just how bodies work. There's nothing shameful about it at all. Not to say that it isn't hurtful and not to say that we don't hurt the people around us because we do. And that's, I think, the biggest challenge when people come to, to me and they're older, you know, and they have this pathway, they have this history of behaviors that they're so, so deeply ashamed of and they've hurt people. And that becomes the hardest thing to heal. Is that part of it? Yeah, waking up in your body to the have to bear yeah. the impact of some of your behaviors from before. That's that's very powerful. But also again, the solution is the same. It's like being it learning to just have the feeling and stay with it and not move out of it, out of not being able to tolerate it. Yeah, learning how to be with it and to understand the, that that's just how bodies work. And yep. also Compassion. the other piece that's hugely important here is to learn about, you know, the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. So in the addictive state, that flight, fight, freeze and fold state of dorsal, the prefrontal cortex is not functioning well. And that's the part of us that is really concerned with values and morality and it's just gone to sleep. Yep. And when you explain that to folks that are really deeply addicted, that is incredibly liberating, right? So mm -hmm. it's like, of course it feels like it's a not you part of you because you in full ventral grounded, integrated felt sense, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't choose to do that. It violates who you know yourself to be. But mm -hmm. that isn't the you that did that. The you that did that was in the autonomic nervous system states of the trauma feedback loop. And in those states, we don't learn well 
and we're not present with what we know is the right choice for us in terms of our value system. And that's how we hurt other people and ourselves. That is incredibly liberating. I especially love the way that you've simplified some of these complex ideas. Again, that's something that Anne and I work really hard to try to translate this science and make it accessible to everybody in the world that is interested for free. (laughs) That's what the podcast is about. I wanted to just very briefly, for those folks that are interested in some of the pushback that polyvagal theory has gotten, can you just very briefly say your perspective on that? Yeah, well, I've talked about that with Steve and I've read uh, his um, his responses to that. And in a very simple kind of way, how I understand it is that Steve's way of measuring heart rate variability is not the same as the traditional way. And the critique is coming through not understanding that, that his way of really doing the work that he's done with heart rate variability, which is a, you know, a major source of his research, by the critics, it's not, it's not accurate. It's not what he has actually done in the research. And so that's a really big source of the problem. You know, my perspective on it too, just from reading and trying to understand is kind of the same thing. It's like arguing about angels on the head of a pen that as it gets so deep into the actual neuroscience, my, you know, my eyes cross, I have no idea about that stuff, but what I do know, but what I do know is that he's onto something and it's valuable and that clinically that this is a very important idea. So we'll, my perspective is let's let them work that part out, but that we're going to hang on to it as a valuable clinical tool. So I'm glad to hear. Yeah, because exactly what you're saying for me, it just totally matches what I found 40 years ago. So if people would like to hear more from you, get your book, the name of your book again is what? Treating Trauma and Addiction with a Felt Sense Polyvagal Model. Big mouthful. <laughs> Routledge, and it's on my website, janwinhall.com. There's a 20% discount with a code on my website. And then you can download the graphics. We use body cards, the, the model that I described, the six Fs. Uh, the three circle practice and then listed is lots of other courses in the polyvagal institute i have a course now a certification course a certification in polyvagal institute through my book treating trauma and addiction and also a certification through the uh, international focusing institute in focusing proficiency really trying to bring in that cultural lens the anti-oppressive lens and working with safety in the body That's great. So we will list all these things in the show notes, which you can find at therapistuncensored.com. And it'll be backslash the number episode. This is that at this point, I don't know, but, or you can just go to the website and there's a search function Mm -hmm. and you can search for Jan Winhall and you will find all of these resources for sure. And if you've enjoyed this and would like to hear more, certainly we have a deep library of including interviews with Steve Porges himself and Deb Dane, of course, in our uh, catalog uh, for free. And we would love for you to go check those things out so you can deep dive into these concepts, which we're thrilled to be able to bring you. Thank you so much for joining us. And this has been really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And Ann and I have been 
learning and, and articulating and translating. And this is a really beautiful example of it coming together in a way that is really understandable. Mm, I'm so glad. Mm, Thank absolutely. You so much, so much. Thank you. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.